Daniel 3, again, our theme for the day is confidence when in Babylon, and we read the following. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide. A cubit is roughly from your elbow to the tip of your finger there, so about a foot and a half, so 60 cubits is about 90 feet, 90 feet high. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and the peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, I don't know why he can't just say the instruments. <laughs> I trust the spirit, but I just have no idea why every instrument in the Babylonian band needs to be mentioned. The horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, all kinds of music. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. See, he, he's given him one more chance. He's invested three years in these guys plus. He likes them. He's given them one more out. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God that we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve you, your gods, or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, but look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is God's word. We're in our third week looking at the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 3 this week. And what we've said each week is the book of Daniel is arguably the best spot in all of the Bible for believers to figure out what it's like. How do you go about navigating a society that is not particularly favorable towards true believers? How do you navigate a society that we've, we've called it pluralism? Pluralism is different from polytheism. Polytheism in the ancient world, when we think of the Egyptians, we think of the Greeks, we think of the nations with many, many, many gods. Pluralism is actually, the idea is that every approach to God, every approach to religion, every approach to spirituality is considered in that society to be equally valid. Some of you might be old enough to remember this. In the early 2000s, especially right after 9-11, you started to see this everywhere, everywhere, right? The coexist, not just on bumper stickers, but the basic idea and the basic like sentiments of it preached everywhere, the idea of coexist. And when Satan tries to deceive a people, he usually doesn't tell something that's 100% false. What he does is he teaches something that's only like 75% true. And in other words, it looks like good fruit, but with like a little bit of lethal poison injected into it. And the perfectly valid concept attached to coexist is the idea that we absolutely want to live in a civilization where people with differing beliefs nonetheless respect one another and support one another and are non-hostile, non-violent towards one another. I mean, the original definition of tolerance is not the idea that we endorse everything from everyone else, but it's the idea that even when I disagree with other people about stuff, we nonetheless are going to live peaceably in the same space. By the way, that's how a family coexists in the same house. You don't coexist because everybody has the same preferences and the same opinions about everything. You coexist because you understand that there is a system that we're all kind of submitting to here, that we're going to love and respect one another and uh, speak with understanding and communication with one another. That's real coexistence, right? The dangerous insinuation attached to ideas like coexist, however, is the idea that, uh, and this was especially popular right after 9-11, the idea that all religions are basically the same and all organized religion is capable of becoming corrupted and that organized religion sort of creates a social dissension that comes from personal pride and condescension 
and that absolute truths and absolute dogmas are antithetical to living in a peaceful society, right? So uh, you can believe whatever you want to believe. Just mm, privatize it. Keep it behind closed doors, right? And don't you dare ever insinuate that your beliefs are superior to anybody else's beliefs. Um, this is why, I mean, we live in a society where if you tell other people that you are a spiritual seeker, they will absolutely applaud you for that. But if you tell people that you have absolute exclusive spiritual truth, you're almost guilty of hate speech in society today. You're considered dangerous. That's the tension. Uh, a couple weeks ago, if you were here, you might remember I shared with you a study from the Barnum organization a couple years ago that said that almost half of practicing uh, Christian millennials say that evangelism is wrong. Half of practicing Christian millennials. How do you get to a point where the, the, the great commission, the greatest commandment of Jesus that you should go and evangelize is considered wrong by half of people in a generation who call themselves Christian? Uh, that's how you get to that point. That idea that it would be is born out of that idea that you should never tell anybody else what they should potentially believe or that your truth is somehow better than everybody else's truth, Right? Well, are all religions created equal? If anybody ever wants to suggest that to you, I have two just real quick words that you can share with them that debunks that whole idea that every religion is basically the same. All you have to say to them is Amish jihadist. Have you ever heard of an Amish jihadist? No? You know why? Because beliefs make a difference. I mean, people who don't have strong religious convictions might not recognize that, but what you believe actually fundamentally changes you. Uh, and it makes a big deal. And you have to be able to stand up for what you believe in a non-antagonistic, respectful, but nonetheless bold and courageous kinds of ways. Daniel and his friends are figuring out in 600 BC how to do that in Babylonism, and they are living in almost the exact same type of cultural spirit that you and I are roughly in today. They're probably a couple steps ahead of that. Now, interestingly, in the opening verses, what we see here is King Nebuchadnezzar is so committed to the idea of cultural pluralism Remember, he doesn't construct, even though they have many gods, he doesn't construct many statues. He constructs one statue, one image. Many gods, one image. That's pluralism, okay? That's exactly what that's teaching. And probably based on, if you remember uh, Pastor Krieger's sermon last week, he was talking about this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had where the head of the statue that he saw in his dream was gold and represented Babylon. And so after that, what does he do? He decides he's going to construct a 90-foot statue plated with gold on the plains of Dura to his ideals of pluralism and, and all that stuff, the ideals of Babylon. It says everybody in the empire has to absolutely bow down to it. And if you don't bow down to it, anybody who doesn't bow down to it will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, sometimes when the world proclaims an idea of tolerance, uh, it can be a little intolerant to anybody who doesn't endorse those ideas of, of tolerance, right? So like, I'm convinced Nebuchadnezzar thought, okay, I am very open-minded. I am very loving. I say all pathways to God are equal and valid. And anybody who disagrees with that, I'm going to throw them into a fire. You know, like it's a little, it's a little intolerance to his notions of tolerance. What it does is it, it, it exposes the fact that what he's doing really here isn't to tolerance, it's totalitarianism. It's the idea that if you disagree with me, I'm going to force my way upon you. Let's not, by the way, miss the fact that here you have a couple of Jewish guys getting thrown into a furnace by somebody who thinks he's doing the world a favor in the process. 
Like, let's not pretend like humanity has evolved much beyond its totalitarian fleshly impulses in the past couple thousand years. We have not. We have not. And he says, okay, well, you guys are going to go in the furnace then. Anybody who possibly disobeys this. By the way, I would also say that Christians are not immune to this because you and I have flesh. You look at the grossest stains in the history of the Christian church and you have European imperialism and Spanish inquisitions and, and Salem witch trials and uh, slavery by people who self-identified as Christian in the south of the United States. And all of it is the exact same gross Christians demonstrating an idol of power and control. And what we learn here in the end, your own anger, your own searing hot anger and all-consuming pride is only going to burn you in the long run. Okay. So on the surface, what this, this lesson is about is about the idol of pluralism and the furnace of unjust suffering that we face in life. And one of the interesting questions, we find a lot of resolve out of Daniel's friends. Where are, where's Daniel uh, is a good question. Bible scholars will say, you know, he's very high ranking in the empire. He's probably off as an ambassador in a different land at this point, doing some of the king's bidding. That's probably as good of a guess as anything. But his, his three friends, who are officials also in the empire, are right here. And they are refusing to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's pluralistic ideals. And uh, not only are they refusing to do so, but they're, they don't even feel the need to defend themselves. Let's say they literally say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. In other words, we're not going to fight with you. We're not going to engage in fight. Uh, we're not going to apologize for the exclusivity of our beliefs and our God. And we're certainly not going to bow down to false gods and disrespect our God in the process. And, and actually, as they do this, they give us what is, I would argue, perhaps the single best statement in human history on understanding the providence of God and the nuance of human decision-making in the midst of it. So combining the ideas of a responsibility of human decision with the sovereignty of God. What they say here, our brains as 21st century Americans, we almost don't even have a category for this. Here's what they say. If we're thrown into the blazing fire, the God that we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Did you catch that? Our God is able to save us. Our God will save us. And if our God doesn't save us, we're still not going to bow down. Here's what they're saying. King Nebuchadnezzar, God has blessed you with being in this position of privilege and position of power, you know, and we want to respect you in that office. But the God who stretched out the stars in the skies, he actually governs over you and we serve him more than we serve you. And what you're doing right now is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. And we want you to turn away from that. And our God, if you don't, our God is going to supernaturally rescue uh, us from that. But if he chooses not to, that means that he has some other kinds of plans by which he's going to bring his glory into the world and going to bless us through that. And therefore, regardless of what he ends up doing, we're not bowing down and worshiping your gods because he's our own God. Now, here's why this is so helpful and so incredibly clarifying. Because it gives us a filter for how we go about making decisions in life. Throughout all of my pastoral counseling over the years, I would say 90 plus percent of the time when people come in and they say like something's bothering them, something's wrong, and oftentimes they have to make a decision accordingly, almost invariably what they're stressed out about is making the right decision. And what I have to do is I have to back them off the ledge and say like, wait a second, you with all due respect, you don't know enough and you're not powerful enough 
to control all the inestimable and incalculable variables that go into creating outcomes in your life. You don't control how somebody else is going to react to what you do. You don't control your own personal health all that well. You don't control the financial markets out there. You don't control, a, you don't control the weather. You don't control a bunch of stuff that's going on. You can't control the outcomes. Stop trying to control the outcomes. You're stressed out because you think you're responsible for the outcomes. Just obey God. Whatever God is telling you to do in this situation, whatever God reveals through his word, just do that and trust him to work the outcomes. Daniel's friends, they know it's not their job to get themselves out of this furnace. That's God's job. Their job is just to obey him. It's clarifying. You and I don't have the responsibility to deliver the outcomes in life, so stop trying. Just obey the God who is sovereign over all the variables and over all the outcomes. You'll be a lot less stressed out and you'll be a lot more faithful. It's that difficult and it's that easy all at the same time. Uh, faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within us or the circumstances around us or the consequences that fall before us. Faith means not being frightened by threats or impressed by crowds or swayed by superstitious, guilt-inducing, pious people around us. Faith means just obeying the Lord and trusting that he works out the outcomes that glorify him and are for our good in the long run. And when you act in faith, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody in the world is gonna like you for it. These three men act in faith and Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely furious. He, he misperceives their confidence in God as personal arrogance. And he's so angry with them, so furious, that he tells his servants that the, the, the furnace be stoked seven times hotter. And it's so hot that actually the soldiers that bind them and throw them in the furnace are killed in the process as they're doing so. But as Daniel's friends get in the furnace, he looks in for a while and he says, wait a second, wait a second. Why are they unharmed? Now, I, I need you to see what this image is. This is when the watching world sees that God's people are relatively unaffected by the heat in the furnace that's when they tend to see Christ most clearly in your life, okay? So look at what he says here. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. Now, this is a real big study, but throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, there is somebody referenced that is a messenger of God, an angel of God, and sometimes specifically referred to as the angel of the Lord. And he makes certain appearances at critical times with Abraham and Joshua and Moses and Hagar and uh, a number of people along the way. And it's a big study, so I don't have time to go through all of it. But the, through circumstances and through the language, the Bible very clearly tells us that that is actually the pre-incarnate Son of God. It's the second person of the Trinity. Uh, it is Jesus before Christmas, before he takes on human flesh as the Christ right? This is, from the early Christian church onwards, believers have always said, this is Jesus in the furnace here with them. Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute, so hold on to that thought. But to close out our narrative here, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has seen that these three guys in the furnace are relatively unaffected by the fire. He sees that there's someone like a divine son of God walking around amongst them, and he orders that these men come out. He's incredibly impressed He's incredibly impressed by them to such an extent that he says, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. And at first glance, it sounds like maybe Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, has he converted? Uh, probably not. This is actually a recurring theme throughout the book of Daniel. 
uh, Nebuchadnezzar gets really impressed by the Lord God of Israel. Being impressed by the power of God doesn't make you a believer. We said this a couple weeks ago in a Testimony of Demons series. The demons are pretty impressed by the power of God. They're not believers. They haven't repented. Okay? So, he's, he, what is, so why is he praising the God of Israel? Because he wants to tap into the power of the God of Israel because that God can apparently do some great things in your life. That's all he's doing. Uh, and you can tell that he's not regenerate. You can tell that he has not repented and, and uh, turned to belief because look at what he says right after he praises Yahweh. He says, therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. If someone doesn't bow down to the Lord God of Israel, I am going to torture them, uh, kill them, and burn their houses down. Does that sound like a regenerate believer? No, he's not repentant. He's not regenerate. He wants to tap into the Lord God's power. And by the way, spiritual conversion, it almost never comes just by a recognition of the power of God. It almost always comes by an experience of the grace of God. Those are very different things. Simply acknowledging that God is incredibly powerful because he is doesn't make somebody a believer. Recognizing and experiencing the fact that he uses his power to forgive you and give you eternal salvation undeservedly, that's what makes people Christians. There's a difference. All right, so if you haven't gotten any takeaway lessons yet, I got a couple for you here. Number one, obedience, suffering, and relationship with God. When the three Jewish men told Nebuchadnezzar that they weren't going to bow down and serve his gods, when they told him that the Lord God would save them, but even if he didn't, they still weren't going to bow down, here's what they're saying. They're saying, we serve God because he's God, not because we think he's going to bless us in a certain kind of way. You've heard the term like gold digger before, right? Gold digger is somebody who has an affection or pretends to have an affection for somebody else because they believe, not, they don't really care about the person themselves per se, but they believe that that person can bring some good things into their life, right? So it's, it's, it's manipulative, it's dehumanizing. By the way, it's, not, it's also not just a financial thing. You can uh, desire the presence of somebody who's physically attractive in your life as a romantic partner because psychologically what it does is it sort of mitigates against your own personal insecurities. Uh, guys do this all the time. They want somebody beautiful in their life to love them, not because they just care about this person, but because it makes them feel good about their own self-loathing. You can want the presence of somebody else in your life because it it assuages some of your loneliness personally. You can want the presence of somebody else in your life because uh, that friendship, it makes all your travels a lot more fun because it's exciting to do stuff with other people rather than just have to do it alone. And I'm not saying that all of that is inherently wrong. What I'm saying is all of it is inherently self-focused affection. You have the affection because that other person is doing something good for you. They're making you feel, they're helping you feel a certain way. Daniel and his friends are not worshiping the God of Israel because he's gonna give them promotions. They're not worshiping the God of Israel because uh, he is going to protect them potentially from all earthly harm or give them all sorts of earthly prosperity. They're, They're worshiping the God of Israel, novel thought, because he deserves to be worshiped. They're worshiping the God of Israel because he's worthy of praise. They love God because he's God, not because they necessarily think he's going to help them with all sorts of stuff in life. That's genuine relationship. What I'm asking you to do to consider today is ask yourself why it is that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. I will tell you that I personally, if I go back to my teenage years, 
Um, so I, I was, you know, in Christian environment, Christian, you know, my whole life. But when I was a teen, teenager, I was very, so 16 through 18 or so, I was very uh, hardworking. I was very morally obedient. I was very respectful. I got good grades. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't party. I didn't mess around with girls. I didn't do any of that stuff. But I was a very angry individual, you know why? Because when somebody else in my life, like let's say there was another guy who did all that stuff, he drank and he partied and he smoked and he, he was disrespectful to authorities, when he would play a better basketball game than me, or when he got something else in my life, like a girl to like him that I liked, I was so angry with God. So I was like, why am I even doing this anyways? What's the point? Why am I so obedient in all these difficult and inconvenient ways if you're not gonna give me the stuff in life that I actually want? And what I came to understand along the way, and it took me years, and it took me a lot of depression to figure this out, but I realized that I actually never loved God for God. I only obeyed God because I thought he would then supernaturally bless me. I thought if there's anybody in life that actually deserves God's supernatural you know, favor, I would probably deserve it then, right? I didn't love God for God. I was trying to manipulate the true God to give me my false gods and the stuff that I actually desired in life. Thank God he didn't give it to me, you know? Nobody has ever taught me more about intimacy with God and the necessity of suffering in that than uh, what Tim Keller has done in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. At one part in it, he references a researcher by the name of Christian Smith at Notre Dame, and he says, from Christian Smith's research, he concluded that this was, this was me exactly in my teen years. He concluded that most young adults are practical deists, is what he called them, though few of them have ever heard that term. Smith means that they see God as a being whose job it is to meet their needs. The implicit but strong cultural assumption of young adults is that God owes all but the most villainous people a comfortable life. This premise, however, inevitably leads to bitter disillusionment because life is nasty, hard, brutish, and always feels too short. The presumption of spiritual entitlement dooms its bearers to a life of confusion when things in life inevitably go wrong. Uh, this also makes me think of the Heroes of Faith chapter in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 11, we get this. Yeah, some of you have read this before and heard this. There's these famous heroes of faith, guys like Noah and Abraham and Moses, and they face all these obstacles, but then they make these big leaps of faith, and God supernaturally delivers them from all their problems. And then if you keep reading through the chapter, eventually you get down to Hebrews 11, verses 36 and 37, and it says, and then some heroes of faith faced jeers and flogging and chains and imprisonment, and they were put to death by stoning, and they were sawed in two, and they were killed by the sword. So you got all these people, Noah and Moses and Abraham, the names that we've memorized, they made leaps of faith and God miraculously delivered them from all their troubles. And then there's all these other people who we don't know the names of who were also faithful and made leaps of faith and they got stripped naked, sawed in half in front of their family. This also makes me think of the Apostle Paul and Silas. At one point on their missionary journeys in Acts 16, they're on one of their they're in one of their spots, one of their difficult predicaments, and they're actually in a cell, and it's the middle of the night. It's in a city called Philippi, and they're, they're singing songs of praise to God. And it's the middle of the night, you're saying, why aren't they sleeping? They probably can't sleep because their arms are in such a way in chains and stuff that they just, like, they can't even sleep. 
and the jailer hears them singing praises to God. The world hears them singing praises to God from the inside of the prison cell. Now, what's interesting is, why don't they wait till God miraculously delivers them and they're outside of the prison cell, and then we'll start praising God? You know why? It's because God deserves praise from the inside of the prison cells, too. Whether you feel it or not, God deserves, because he's God, he deserves our praise from the inside of the prison cells and on the outside of the prison cells. If you're suffering right now and your playlist is like just laments, like it needs praises too. It absolutely needs praises. God will deliver you. And even if he doesn't, you should still praise him because he deserves it. And one of the key questions in this text then is, are you willing to stand up and stand out and face furnaces in life in obedience and gratitude to God, even when it makes life super uncomfortable, even when it costs you relationships and everything else? You should absolutely do it. You should absolutely do it because he deserves your praise. He also does some pretty incredible things in the midst of those furnaces. So the second point, Christ is visible in the furnace. Honestly, this is the first week I think I've ever seen this in this text, but from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, uh, the one like the son of the gods, who we've already identified as the pre-incarnate Christ, he only appears, he only shows up when these guys are in the furnace. But the text doesn't say he was only there when they were in the furnace. It says that they can only see him when they're in the furnace. Uh, it's interesting that when he tells them to come out, four guys don't come out, three guys come out. Now, there's a couple interesting things in there, but at the very least, to some extent, what this must mean is Christ is somehow more visible in your life when you're faithfully facing furnaces than when you're not. The world is not going to see Christ in your life nearly as much in your successes as in your failures and your hardships and your opposition, and your oppression, and your furnaces. Adversity is the primary occasion that God uses in your life for the rest of the world to see the power and grace of Jesus Christ in you and with you. So, you know, bowing down to the gods of this culture in a pluralistic society, is it sinful? Yeah, it's sinful. But it's also, it's eschewing the primary opportunity that the rest, when we get utilized, for the rest of the world to see the power and grace of Jesus Christ. It would have been very easy for Daniel's friends to say, you know what, we can do a lot more good for our countrymen alive than as ashes in the bottom of King Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. And so like, why don't we just kind of bow down and you will t- we know that we're bowing down to the Lord God of Israel. We don't have to tell anybody else that it's only, they don't do that though. You know why? The tension is necessary. The furnace is necessary. If they circumvent standing up, then they circumvent the furnace. If they circumvent the furnace, they circumvent the opportunity for the rest of the world to see the goodness of God and the power of God in their lives. So don't run from the furnaces. Don't do everything possible. I know your flesh doesn't want to get in a furnace. Stop trying to rearrange your life in such a way so that you can avoid all possible discomfort. The ones that are necessary, get into them because that is the primary way that God is going to make his grace and power known in your life through you. See, unless, unless everything else in your life is sort of falling apart, it's very difficult to wor- for the world to see that in Christ, all things hold together. Uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, my 19-year-old niece went to heaven. 
And that was after 17 years in a furnace. And it was like, it was a terrible, like weirdly, uh, it was a very rare condition. She had it since she was two years old. She was miserable every day. Her body, her organ, internal organs shut down over time. Her core body temperature was never above like 90 degrees. Uh, it, was, it was a furnace for 17 years. And her family was right there with her in that furnace every day for 17 years. And at her funeral, you know, the family, they got up and they said that they were so grateful that she is now at peace with God and free from her suffering. They said how excited they were to see her again without any of the pain that had hurt her. They expressed how grateful they were for God's undeserved goodness to her and God's undeserved goodness to them. The basic ideas of this society, the basic ideas of this world, the pluralistic whatever has nothing to say to that family on that day. But Christianity meant that that day was gonna be more about just like sharing memories, many of which were painful. It meant that it was hopeful expectation of the life that really is life and that it's going to get better from here. And I'll tell you what, Christ was super visible all day long right there in, right there in that process. Brings me to the last point. Not only was God willing to get into the furnace with Daniel's friends, part of the reason why only three of them emerge out of the furnace, seemingly the Spirit is suggesting us it's because the fourth one has to stay in there and face the furnace alone. And one of the interesting things, if you want something that is distinctly Christian and how it's different from all the other world's religions and thought systems, every religion, every thought system, every philosophy in the world has a conception of God or the gods as powerful. Some religions have the conception of God as maybe loving or generous. There is no other belief system that says that God loves you enough uh, in self-sacrifice, he will die in your place. And 500 years after Babylon, God came down in the person of Jesus Christ and he got into the ultimate furnace at the cross because he loves us so much that he didn't want us to have to suffer. And so he took the punishment for any evil, any wickedness, all selfishness, all indifference, all bowing down to the stuff of this life. We have a God who doesn't just reach down into the furnace to rescue us out. We have a God who gets down into the furnace to boost us out. And, uh, you know, Tim Keller in that book on suffering that I mentioned earlier, he says something that's going to stick with me for forever. Uh, he said that Christ came down, God came down to suffer, not so that you and I would never have to suffer in a fallen world, but so that when we suffer, one, we can be sure that we're not alone because we have a God who suffers with us and he actually sends his church to shoulder that suffering with us. Number two, we can be confident that God is gonna bring some good from our suffering because look at Christ's suffering. His suffering at the cross brought about salvation for all mankind. We have a God whose MO it is to bring resurrection out of crucifixion, to bring life out of death. And what that guarantees is your best witness in this world will be whatever he allows you to face with faith in the furnace. It will bring glory. It's meaningful and impactful for eternity. Number three, the fact that Jesus came down and suffered an ultimate furnace meant that our furnaces will only ever be temporary, that our suffering will one day come to an end. And actually, by the way, the, the way that you and I know that God loves us the most is because of his furnace. Anybody can have an idea that God is in general loving, but if you don't have a conception of hell, if you don't have a conception of furnace, then your God doesn't love you as much as my God loves me because my God went through hell in order to rescue me. 
And if he did that, what wouldn't he do for you and me? He will rescue us from all the fires of this world. And if he doesn't, we're still gonna praise him because he deserves it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you were burned in an ultimate, unthinkable way, all because you loved us and you wanted us to experience relief. We thank you, we praise you, we rejoice in that relief, and we confidently face any furnaces that might glorify your name. It's in your name we pray, amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.